In Mark 8, 22 through 33, God speaks to us in his word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, thank you, Savannah. Good to see everybody. Meet you guys I haven't met yet. I can't even believe I made it through that whole baptism without crying. I don't know what's wrong with me, man. Maybe I'm losing my edge. I don't know. Uh-huh. Glad you guys are here today. Man, um, so listen, I, I want to start by saying I want to I call out some things that might be fairly obvious in the room, but just to kind of put you at ease a little bit, I want to recognize a few things that you might be carrying in here today with you. You're coming from a world that uh, seems more and more crazy. You're coming from um, a people that seem more and more impossible to get along with. You're coming from a world where everybody right now just is mad. They're just angry. If you lead anything at all, if you have to make decisions for people, you'll know that like those people, they seem impossible to please at times. And the whole world just feels mad. They're just ticked off, man. Everybody thinks each other are crazy, and then you divide that by four, and they have about all these sections of people that believe different things, and they each think each one person is crazy for what they believe in or how they act or what they do or don't do. Two sides of the same coin is like on this side, you're pointing to the other side, the person, whoever's on the other side with their ideas and beliefs and whatever. You're pointing to them going, what is wrong with, how could you, are you blind? How could you possibly believe and think the way that you believe about any of this stuff? What kind of crazy lens do you have over your eyes to make you think and see things the way that you do. You are blind. And then the other side of the coin is, are you crazy? Are you blind? What makes you see things the way that you see them? What makes you think the way that you think? What, what kind of 
insanity lens do you have over your eyes to make you see things that way? It's two sides of the same coin. People just are mad, and it seems like it's easy to label the world as just like, golly, we just are not, something's wrong. We're not seeing things clearly. There's something happening in the fabric of humanity right now that is like, it feels new. It's not new, by the way. We are just more aware of it. I mean, in the history of humanity, like, there's always been crazy stuff happening. But right now, we're so aware of it that it just feels like this statement of like, how can you see things the way that you see them? So, that's the world you're coming out of. That's what you feel. That's what I feel. And I just want to tell you that like, you're not alone here today. This is a safe place for you to feel those things and to bring all your craziness all of your burden, all of that, all of your questions and your skepticism and your speculation and your fear and your anxiety, you can bring all of that. It's not new. The story that we just read and the story that we're going to talk about today is about people who see things but not clearly. They don't see clearly. The Gospel of Mark is what we've been teaching through. It's one of four Gospels. It talks about all four Gospels give you the story of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest one of those books, 16 chapters. We are now eight chapters in. The first eight chapters of Mark has a theme. The theme is this, Jesus is truly the King. He truly is. Everybody's been trying to figure it out. Jesus has been proving himself as God. He is God in the flesh, Jesus. The incarnation of God becoming man. He's proving over and over again that he has a different type of power. Not the power that you're used to. Jesus comes and he starts healing people. Sick people get healed around Jesus fully. He also comes and starts telling things like wind and waves, storm, be still. He also is able to cast out demons in people like that, legions of demons. And he's able to raise people up from the dead. So he's showing us his power big time, man. He's got power over sickness and disease. He's got power over nature itself. He's got power over darkness and demonic. And he also has power even over death. Jesus is undoubtedly no question about it. Through the first eight chapters of Mark, he has no questions asked. He is the king. He has power. Now we turn. There's 16 chapters, one through eight, Jesus is king. And the next is answering this question, what kind of king is he? What kind of king is he? We know he has power. What kind of Messiah is he? We think he might be the Messiah, but what kind of authority is he? He's going to open eyes. He's going to help people see completely and clearly the type of king that he is. And it all starts with a miracle. And the first thing is this. We see a blind man, what seems like a random story. We see a blind man getting partially healed and then fully healed by Jesus. So the blind man sees clearly. 
almost. Here's the story. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, which is weird, laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Another healing by Jesus. We've seen now multiple times that Jesus has healed someone of their disease. A couple where he's healed a man of blindness. He healed um, also a man of deafness. And his, he was mute in his tongue. He healed him of that. It's a healing by Jesus that we've seen. Why is this random story in this section of the Bible? It just feels like an aside. It doesn't fit with the rest of it. But I want you to notice something. What Jesus asked of this man is not are you healed, not how do you feel, not grade my performance. What he asked of him is a very important question. He asked him, do you see? This section of scripture is all about sight. Do you see? Now the man says, well, kind of. I mean, I couldn't see at all before you did whatever you did, spit in my eyes, and now I'm like, I kind of see people look like trees. It's like a partial healing by God himself. You know, kind of weird. Like, why wouldn't God fully heal him? He's trying to prove a point to us. Which, by the way, an aside to this is this. We believe in healing. We believe that Jesus can heal. Sometimes he heals completely and totally right away. We all want that. But when he doesn't heal completely and totally right away, we start to get speculative of, of, can he heal? He can. Sometimes he heals partially. Sometimes it takes time and prayer. Sometimes he doesn't heal at all. It doesn't mean that he's not God, and doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan, and doesn't mean that he's not good. If God, if you pray for healing and it doesn't come, keep praying. The point is this. It's not the miracles. The point is to know Jesus. That's the point. And prayer helps you know Jesus. Keep praying. Keep seeking. He heals him partially. And then he lays hands on him again, and his sight is fully restored. The story isn't about physical healing at all. It's about sight. It's about a man going from blurry to clear. Everyone up to this point in Mark has had a blurry vision about who Jesus is. Their vision is not fully clear. They said, I know he's powerful, and I know he might be the Messiah, he might be the one that came to save us, but I'm not quite sure. And what brings into question is their idea of what Messiah is. Throughout history, Israelites, the people of God who he revealed himself to, would have seen his miracles and said, that's very God-like. But Messiah, like Messiah is supposed to come and overthrow the party, the political party over us. Messiah is supposed to come and overthrow the government over us. They're supposed to come and overthrow Rome. Messiah, when he comes, the way he's prophesied, he's supposed to come with um, this authoritarian-like power. He comes with a sword. And everybody bows down to the people of Messiah. He gives us all the comfort we want. He gives us all the things we want. He looks like us. He acts like us. He's just a better version of us. That's what the people of God thought Messiah would look like. And Jesus comes in, and 
None of that stuff happens. However, he has the power over nature. He has the power over death and sickness. What is going on? They see Jesus, but it doesn't line up in their brain. He doesn't look like the thing that they thought he should be. So they don't see him clearly. They have blurred vision. His disciples do the same thing. Jesus fed 5,000 people with not even close to enough food. Jesus had enough food to basically feed his disciples. And there were 5,000 people hungry. He multiplied the loaves and fishes. And he did it again later in Mark, which is the story before where we're at now. There's 4,000 people who don't have enough food for. He multiplies the loaves and fishes. And instead of Jesus doing what I would have done, which would have been like, hey, will you grade uh, me? Will you give me a grade on how good I was at this miracle? (laughs) Jesus asked them a very important question. He says to them, his disciples who have followed him after he fed these people, he says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? What an interesting thing. Can't you see what's happening? It's more than just miracles. There's something going on here. The disciples were missing something. They clearly saw Jesus perform, but their vision was blurry. The disciples see clearly, almost, like the blind man who saw clearly, but not quite yet. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now Peter took him aside and began to, what an idiot, took him aside and began to rebuke him. You have seen this guy calm the storm. A storm raging. A little girl dead And you just decide, I'm going to rebuke this man. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. My goodness, I've been insulted in my life, but nobody's ever called me the prince of darkness. What an insult. Jesus' point has got to be strong here. What's he getting at? Why is it so? Peter confessed you are the Christ. Peter said, this is who you are. We believe that you're the Christ. Which, by the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the title given to Messiah. The one that they had prophesied about that would come and offer salvation and come and bring authority and come bring power to them. But they misread Scripture. They thought Messiah was going to come with his sword drawn, and he did, but it wasn't against the government. It was against Satan, sin, and death. And in this moment, he gets mad at Peter, who rebuked him when he talked about suffering, rebuked him when he talked about being killed. Because Peter, like everybody else, had blurry vision. 
they thought, you are the Christ, and I'm ready for you to overthrow Rome. And then when he talked about dying and suffering, Peter pulls him aside and says, and rebukes him. It's a bold move, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. What a powerful thing to say. Remember when Jesus encountered Satan in the wilderness, he tempted him with power and authority and money and all the things that Peter and his disciples and the people of God want the Messiah to be. Powerful, give them money, give them comfort, authority, overthrow the Roman government. He told Satan in the wilderness, get behind me. Rebuked him. Says, I have everything I need. God will provide. He tells it to Peter, too. He said, this isn't just Peter. This is the devil. This is a work of the enemy to give people something that they don't need, but they want. Their vision is blurry. And that's the same thing for you and I today. This is not some random story about random people. This is for you and me. We want Jesus to be exactly like we want him to be. We want to get all the comfort. We want him to vote like us. We want him to act like us. We want him to be the God that we designed in our image. And he's not. He's God and you're not God. So following Jesus means that we submit fully to him. And when he disagrees with us, which is often for me, when he disagrees with me because of this Bible, when he tells me I'm not acting right, when he tells me I should love my neighbors, when he tells me I should love my enemies, hello, if I follow Jesus, to truly follow him means if I get into an argument with God, I pursue losing. I lose the argument. Tim Keller says it this way. He's a great author. You should read everything he ever wrote. If your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. We make God in our image. Our vision is blurry. We love power and authority and might and the idea of Messiah and save me. But by golly, give me what I want, man. Give me what I want. We're going to be fine. But if you just give me what I want, if you just let me have what I want in life, I'll be, it will be good. But it, when you start to ask me to be something or do something or lay down something or repent of something, at that point, I'm out. I'm out. We didn't make God in our image. He made us in his image. You need God to even know who you are. The disciples could see a little bit. In this room, we can see a little bit. that We could say, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ. I grew up, man, I'm, I grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, we went to church. I know the church stuff. I know the church language. I could probably sing some of the songs or whatever. And so I'm, I'm good. I, I, like, I could say, yeah, I think Jesus is the Savior. I think that's right. I think I'll, I think I'll stand in that category of people. Jesus is the Savior. But when it comes to like, well, okay, you know what that means is he wants every part of you, right? He wants your marriage and your life and your identity and, man, your sexuality. He wants all of that. He wants, he wants your money. He wants your career. He's Lord over your life. 
That's the difference. And I'm telling you right now, like, I sympathize with you. I feel the pushback in the room. I sympathize with you. It's hard to give it up. And you don't ever have to do it perfectly. You do it imperfectly. There's always grace for you because there's never been a perfect follower of Jesus in this entire world. Never in the history of the world. There's only been Jesus who was perfect. We never had a perfect follower of Jesus ever. So you come imperfectly saying, I, this is tough, man. I don't want to let go of this thing, God, that you're asking me to let go of. I don't, I don't really want you to meddle with my finances. <laughs> but help me, Lord, help me. Help me see clearly. Help me see it clearly. Help me come clear up my vision. I see in part. I know in part. You come and clear up my vision, God. That's how you love God. That's how you follow God. That's how we do it. We repent and we say, I cannot love God without God putting love in me. Because we never do it perfectly. man. We need Jesus to even know Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen to me. Every doubter in the room, every skeptic in the room, and there are multiple here today, Maybe church is so weird to you. Maybe you just like, somebody invited you and you're like, man, I don't want to go to this joint. I don't want to hear this dude. He's going to ask me for my money. <laughs> I know it. Maybe church feels like, you know, some Christian broadcasting network or whatever. You just were just going like, man, I know this dude. He's going to have cufflinks and he's going to be all weird acting on stage. And you didn't want to be here. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you doubt. Maybe, you, maybe there's all kind of speculation. I mean, Lord knows we live in a speculative age. Everybody is speculative of any institution or any leader or anything. So it's easy to come in here with all that speculation on you. But I just want to tell you, you don't have to. There's no way. You would be faking it anyway if you thought you showed up here perfect. You'd be a total fake if you came into this room acting like you don't doubt. We need God to have faith. Bring all of your doubts, man. Bring all of your skepticism, every ounce of it. Bring all of like your unanswered questions. You can bring all of that stuff to God. He has the answers. He might not give them to you right away, but go to him by all means. God has the answers. And if you're struggling to believe today, don't try to talk yourself into it. Don't try to get anybody else to talk you into it. You need to go to the author and perfecter of faith, Jesus. He perfects your faith. You cannot love God without God putting love in you for him. You can't know him without him opening up your heart to know him. Bring all of your doubts, man. Jesus alone can open our eyes. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. I like that. That lets me know that I could have understood what he was saying. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of men. The Son of Man must suffer and be killed. It doesn't really fit into the narrative of Messiah, the powerful military leader. But it's actually more power than you can ever imagine. It's true power. It's Jesus, not the military power. It's Jesus, the suffering servant. 
He had to suffer. He had to die. His mission was not to overthrow a government. His mission was to come and offer a way for you to be restored to salvation to God. That's his mission. And the only way that he could do it, listen to me, man, you've got mountains of wrong decisions, brokenness, bad thoughts, taking advantage of people, you name it. That's just the stuff you know about. You've got plenty of other things other than that that are sinful things in your life. I do too. All of that has to go somewhere. And God himself offered a way for us. He paid the penalty. Because there is a penalty against sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. It's the cross. He suffered. He died. A brutal death. He was betrayed. And on the cross, one of the worst torture devices of all time, a Roman cross, is where he paid the penalty for our sins. And the way that he was able to pay our penalty was because he had himself never sinned. He was a sacrifice for us. You ever hear that term, sacrifice? Somebody who gives themselves in your place or does something that you should be doing? Imagine it like this. You have a debt that's owed. It's insurmountable. Jesus even tells a parable about a man that owes a debt. And someone else comes and pays it for him. The debt, which is what we all owe. I mean, it's not like, it's going to be offensive for me to tell you that you owe a debt. I mean, it shouldn't be shocking for me to try and convince you that you're not a perfect person. Hello. If you're real for even one second, you'll know that that's not shocking. That's agreeable. We agree. I'm not, you're not, we ain't perfect. What are you going to do with all of that debt, with all of that sin, when you're faced with a God who is, whose face shines brighter than the sun because of his holiness? No sin can come near him. What are you going to do with that? It's got to go somewhere. And that's the story of the gospel. God opens our eyes. He, it's true power. He came and he offered himself. God himself came. And offered himself, Jesus, the incarnation in the flesh, offered himself as the payment for the things that we did. That's power, man. That's why we said earlier, the greatest miracle, the, the eternal miracle is the miracle of salvation. A dead heart, meaning this, a person who the Bible says is dead, you have no hope outside of Jesus. Him coming and making your heart alive. That's power. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, this is Philippians 2, 5 through 11, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the good news. You hear this term a lot in the church, the gospel. Gospel means good news. It also means truth. This is both good news and truth. 
The gospel is not political. It's not cultural. The gospel is not comfortable. The gospel is God becoming man to suffer a brutal penalty, a brutal death that was owed to you and me to be beaten down, to be abandoned, to stand toe-to-toe with hell and death and come out victorious so that you and I can place all of our hope and all of our trust for any life after death in him. That's the gospel. You couldn't save yourself even if your life depended on it. You couldn't find the first 10, 20 minutes or the best 10, 20 minutes of your life where maybe you would be amazing. Yeah, I guess you could do it if you were sleeping. Maybe that 10, 20 minutes, you like towed the line, man, and you, you didn't sin, have a simple thought, didn't think anything weird, do anything. That 10, 20 minutes, hour, tops. Even in that hour, like your righteousness, your best effort is, doesn't stand up to God. And because he's so good, because he's so loving in his compassion with his great love with which he loved us. In our sin, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Think about this with me. We were separated from him, sinning against him. He came and died for us, redeemed us, and didn't just offer us non-death. We deserve death. He didn't just say, okay, you don't have to die. He gave us life. And then he went a step further, and he gave us a seat at his table. And then he went a step further other than that, and he made us his family. Daughter and son. That's good news, man. That's good news. The gospel is coming to realize that you can't pay what's owed, that you need somebody other than yourself to carry your burdens and brokenness and sin. It's betting your whole life and eternity on that person being Jesus and doing that imperfectly now with imperfect faith later and trusting God to bring faith into your life to give you stronger and better faith. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is. That's the gospel. It's all your hope. It's just, man, I'm a mess. I don't know all there is to know. I don't believe all there is to believe. But I know that I'm a mess, and I know I love Jesus, and I know I want to follow him, and I know I can't do it perfectly, but I'm going to. I'm going to follow him. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be saved. It's trust in Jesus. We witnessed five different people do that today. Get it, out of your, get it out of your Midwestern Bible Belt head that you have to come to Jesus perfectly and follow Jesus perfectly. Get it out of your head that you have to be sinless before coming to Jesus or you dang sure have to be sinless after coming to Jesus. Get it out of your head. That's actually, I think, a lie from hell. You will never, ever do that. This side of heaven, you will never do it. Also get it out of your head that you've got to know everything about God and that you've got to understand him fully. Who can know the mind of God? He is other, my friend. He is different than you. He ain't you and you ain't him. 
You are made in His image. Eternally speaking, you will never ever know everything that God knows. It's impossible. He will always eternally be God. And you will always eternally be a human being. Get it out of your head that you have to live perfectly. It's not true. You've been told that in your life. You've been told in your life that church is the place where you put on your best, which no offense, y'all look great today, I'm just saying, where you put on your best, you act your best, nobody disrupts it, man, church is like, let me just, you hear the phrase a lot, okay, listen, we're going to church. <laughs> Maybe you tell your kids, that we're about to go to church. This is what my mom used to do to me when I was about to go to the dentist, you know, it's like, she didn't care if I brushed my teeth one time the whole week, but if we're going to go home and brush your teeth. I'm like, I'm, I was a punk, man. I'm like, Mom, we're, I'm, the dentist already knows that my teeth are messed up. Why else are we going to the dentist? Might as well just let it happen. The church, man, this idea that when we go to church, we leave our distractions at the door. Give me a break. Who wants to worship a God like that? It's not a real God at all, and you're not a real person then when you walk into the church and you leave your distractions at the door. Lord, help me to walk in there and like leave my sin out of church. We, we ain't doing that here, man. That's not church at all. Bring all of your business up into this place. Be honest. Church is the place to be honest. Come angry, come upset, frustrated, come not understanding, Come in whatever you weigh, just come and bring who you actually are to this place and to Jesus. And then what happens is God saves actual you. He saves the real you. And you meet Jesus with reality. Here I am, Lord. I know I'm freaking some of y'all out, but what other way would we do it? We want our relationship with Jesus and with others to be real, man. Let it be real. So, man, there's a lot of you guys that have been to church a thousand times. You know the church game. You know what to look like, how to act, how to whatever in church. You know some of the songs and some of the things we say. It all makes sense to you. You know what baptism is, whatever. You know some of the stories. You can be churched and actually not even saved. We live in a, in a over-churched and under-saved place. Church is not cultural, it's not political, it's not because you grew up doing it. It's the place where you come, worship Jesus, and bring him your whole true self. So today, I'm gonna invite you. I know it's gonna freak you out, and it might freak other people out, and you cannot fathom in this culture, in this day and age, being exposed in any way. But I'm gonna ask you, think about it today. Think about coming to Jesus and giving your life to him and doing it imperfectly. Coming with your doubts and just going like, I don't know everything there is to know about you or this, that, and the other, Lord, but I'm trusting you today. Come and save me. That, I want to invite you to do that today. I don't care how many times you've been to church, how many songs you've done saying, if you led the choir or whatever. Think about your life today. Think about your eternity. God can save you, and he wants to. He wants to today. It's not by random coincidence that you're here. Yes, he might have used somebody to invite you here, Yes, you might have come kicking and screaming. I don't know. It's not by coincidence, though. The universe doesn't work that way, man. God brought you here today.
to listen to him. Open up your heart a little bit. Open up your mind to him. Let's stand together.